Has there, uh, has there ever been a time in your life where there was something so obvious that was right in front of you, but you just completely missed it? Like maybe it was something big. Maybe it was like a life lesson that was you know, staring you right in the face and, and you just missed it. Or maybe it was the love of your life who was there all along and you were friends and you just never saw it. And then one day you finally realized, wow, I've been missing it this whole time. This is the love of my life. Or maybe like me, it's something smaller and like you lose your sunglasses all the time and they're on your head. And it's so obvious and you do it multiple times a month. If you're, if you're from the South, then you've probably heard the phrase, if it was a snake, it would have bit you. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Sometimes, even though something might be right in front of us, we can miss it because we're distracted or maybe we're just ignorant and we're not aware. But what if I were to tell you that billions of people all over this planet, and probably some of you in this room and some watching online, are missing something so obvious and so clear that it almost defies explanation. And the reason so many people are missing it is not just mere ignorance or distraction. They're missing the most important reality in all the universe because they are under the judgment of God due to sin. That's what today's passage addresses. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Uh, We're in a series going through the book of John. This is our third week in the book of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I'm going to read verses 4 to 13 just to kind of set the context, but we're going to focus in on verses 9 to 13, and that's where I'm going to be teaching out of this morning. So go ahead and open your Bibles. If you've got them, the words will also be on the screen Uh, here as well if you don't have a Bible. John chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 4. This is what the Word of God says. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me pray. God, uh, I thank you for your word, and I pray for your help now um, as I teach Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. Um, Lord, we need your help to be able to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. I need your help to be able to teach your word. Um, God, may what I say be edifying and may it build up the church. And God, I pray that for anyone here 
that is not born again, that has not been born of God like we see here in John chapter 1, verse 13, that today that would happen, that that miracle of regeneration would happen in their hearts. That's not something I can do. It's not something I can convince anyone to do. I can't talk anybody into being a Christian. God, only you can transform a heart from the inside out. Not only you can cause someone to be born again. It's not of the will of flesh. It's not of the will of man. So God, we desperately need your help this morning. Help, just help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus. Help me to fix my eyes on you as I preach, God, even in my weakness. Lord, I pray that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So verses 9 to 13, um, the, I'm going to just kind of want to break down the flow of the passage here and just kind of explain what John is saying in really basic terms. Uh, in verses 9 to 13, John is essentially saying, the light of the world came into the world. Most, including his own people, rejected him, but some received him. And those that received him were given the right to become children of God. So the light of the world came into the world. Most rejected him, including his own people. Some received him. And the, the ones who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, we're just going to walk through this passage step by step this morning. And I want to spend the majority of our time talking about the two reactions to the light of the world. The rejection of the light and the reception of the light. And so we're going to look at how and why most people reject the light of the world, Jesus. And then we're going to look at how and why some receive Jesus and how you can know if you have or not because that happens to be the most important question you're ever going to answer in your life. And then we're going to close with some implications, okay? So our passage starts with a pretty extraordinary claim. It says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So this just isn't just any light. This is the light of the world. This is the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the one that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 talks about, where it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jesus is the true light that reveals God to those living in spiritual darkness because he doesn't just reveal God, he is God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 says that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He came to rescue people from spiritual darkness and the death that comes with it. He came so that God could do what Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 describes happens to Christians. Colossians 1.13 says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That, if you're a Christian, that has happened to you because the light of the world came into the world. But here's the crazy thing, is that even though the true light came into the world, verses 10 and 11 tell us, he did not receive the reception that you'd expect. It says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about how uh, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus 
the Word of God spoke creation to existence, and He came into that world that was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him, didn't recognize Him. And then verse 11 gets more specific. It says, He came to His own. That, that phrase there, He came to His own, the Greek could literally read, He came to His own property, or He came to His own home, or He came to what belongs to Him. Everything including people, belongs to and is subject to God. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God came to what was rightfully His in the person of Christ, but when He came, He was rejected. Why? Why is it that when God came into the world, the world didn't recognize Him? And not only did the world not recognize Him, and not only did His own people not recognize Him, they rejected Him and they killed Him. Well, the first explanation, reason, that people reject Jesus is that people are spiritually blind. They cannot see. Verses 10 and 11 foreshadow what's going to unfold throughout the book of John as we walk through John. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel who should have known better, completely miss the obvious that's right in front of them. They had the Torah memorized. They memorized the entire Old Testament. They knew every single prophecy about the Messiah. And Jesus was fulfilling them right in front of their faces. And they missed it. He was the Messiah that God's people had been waiting for. If anyone should have recognized Him, it should have been the religious leaders. But His own people did not receive Him. Instead of rejoicing at His coming, they crucified Him. This wasn't new, though. Their hearts had already been hardened against God long before. In, in, in this past week's, uh, in your Bible reading plan, you read Isaiah chapter 1. And the prophet Isaiah was sent to the people of Judah to call them to repentance and to call them to turn back to God and to warn them that judgment was coming in the form of exile because of their rebellion against God and their idolatry. Isaiah says, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1, 3, and 4, he says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation." a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That was 700 years before Jesus came. Israel denied their Maker and their Savior, the One who rescued them from Egypt. And all of humanity has done the exact same thing. Every single person. Spiritual blindness is the result of sin. It's the inability to know God and to even come to God. This is called the doctrine of the depravity of man or total depravity. And it's also referred to in Scripture as being dead in sin, like Ephesians 2 says. The blind are unable to see. The dead are unable to respond. Scripture refers to sinners apart from Christ as being blind and dead. Spiritually, every single human being is spiritually blind by default. 
And this is the case because it is God's judgment upon humanity for our sinful rebellion and rejection of God. The only way to be set free from this spiritual blindness and death is for God to intervene, which we're going to talk about how he does that shortly. Now, to show you I'm not making this up, turn with me to John chapter 12, verse 37 and 40. I want to read John 12, verses 37 to 40. Here's what it says. It says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, at first glance, this passage can be troubling. Is this passage suggesting that God purposely keeps people from believing that Jesus is the Messiah? And if so, how can he hold them accountable for doing so? Well, John is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 13 here in John 12 which you read in your reading plan this week. In Isaiah 6, the Lord had sent Isaiah the prophet to proclaim to Judah that judgment was coming upon them for their idolatry. But the people had already rejected God and his word. So the message would only serve to further the hardening of their hearts. God had been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. They continued to ignore the prophets. In fact, they persecuted and stoned them. They continued to harden their hearts. And so God finally said, all right, enough is enough, Isaiah. I am sending you to preach a message to Israel, but this message, they're not going to respond to this message. I have given them over to what they want most, which is their sin. And this message is only going to serve to further harden them in their sin. Now, you might hear that and go, well, wow, that sounds like a really vindictive God. Like, what's up with that? Is God vindictive? Is he just trying to, you know, like rub it in their face? No. God intended to deliver Judah into exile for their sin, but not to bring a full end to them. He would save A remnant. You see, through this judgment of exile, God would purify his people and graciously save a remnant who would worship him from the heart. And so by quoting Isaiah in John chapter 12, John is giving an explanation for why the true light can come into the world and not only be missed, but hated by his own people. If God does not open our eyes, it is impossible to come to Him. Because God has given sinners over to spiritual blindness as a judgment for sin. As a just judgment, mind you, for our sin. All of us, by default, are spiritually blind as a result of sin. Romans 1, 21 and 24 puts it this way. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Do you see that there in the text? Do you see that as a result of of the people that God has made to worship and to love Him as their Lord, as a result of them rejecting God and exchanging the truth for a lie, the judgment of God is He gives them over to the lust of their heart. God says, if you want sin, I will give you over to your sin. And if you want to worship idols that are dead, I will give you over to those idols. That is the condition that we all are in apart from Christ in our sin. And we're blind to it. We, that's why the light of the world can come into the world and people can completely miss him and reject him and crucify him. But not only are people spiritually blind apart from Christ, they love sin. This is another reason that people reject the light. They, they love sin more than the light. John chapter 3 makes this point. Verses 19 and 20, John says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then listen to this. He ramps it up in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's an unnerving passage. Not only does it say that people love darkness, but they hate the light. Preacher, old preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, unconverted men would kill God if they could get at him. And we know it's true because that's exactly what they did when they could. And we flatter ourselves if we think we would do any different in our sin nature. This is truly the essence of sin. It is to reject God and love other things more than God. And it's evil to do this because the end for which God created the world was for you to love Him and to worship Him. It's the very purpose for why we were given life. And at the end of the day, the scribes and Pharisees wanted Jesus dead because Jesus threatened their status and their control, which is what they loved most. Are there things that you love more than God? Has that been holding you back from coming to Jesus? Every one of us will have to make a choice. Either crucify our sinful desires or crucify Jesus. But Jesus is not going to let us straddle the fence. You cannot serve two masters. He will force the issue with us just like he did when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt as the king of the Jews. And those who loved the darkness more than the light tried to snuff out the light of the world by crucifying him on a cross. But guess what? It didn't work. He rose from the dead three days later. And by the way, it was all a part of God's design. It didn't surprise God. God wasn't caught off guard. God didn't watch his people crucify his Messiah and go, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, no. This was all a part of God's plan. Acts chapter 4 verse 27, 28 says that, uh, that, that Jesus came into the world and the people, when they crucified him, did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. 
Much like he did in Isaiah chapter 6 with Judah, today God is graciously saving a remnant. God's purpose in consigning all of the world to the judgment of spiritual blindness is to purify a people for himself. But it's not just a remnant of Jews. It's a, it's a remnant of people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation and language in the world. And this plan unfolds as we read through John. And most of the, the Jews who believe in Jesus are the poor and the outcasts. There's a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There's the Greeks who come and seek Jesus in John chapter 12. There's the Roman centurion who confesses, surely this is the Son of God as Jesus hangs on the cross. Throughout the book of John, we see God drawing the nations to Himself. We see God saving a remnant and calling His people from every tribe and tongue and nation, just like He promised to do in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, if you read that this morning. The kingdom of God will be filled with Jews and Gentiles who once were blind, but now they see. Just like we sang earlier in Amazing Grace. That's what that song means. I once was blind, but now I see. That's what we're singing about. We're singing about John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. We were spiritually blind, dead in our trespasses and sin, consigned over to it. And only by the grace of God alone have our eyes been opened. But how... How does that happen? And why does that happen? How and why does God open our eyes? If if someone is in spiritual blindness, what can they do to be saved? Verses 12 and 13 tell us. John says, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, John first kind of tells us how not to receive spiritual sight. He, he explains to us how we don't receive spiritual sight. He says, you're not, it's not, you can't inherit it. He says, we're not born of blood. Many Jews believed that they were God's people simply by virtue of being born in the line of Abraham. John the Baptist in his ministry, denounced many of them who trusted in this. He, he said, God is able to raise up children of, children of Abraham from these very stones. And many Americans believe that they are going to heaven and that they are God's people because their parents are Christians or they grew up in church or just by virtue of being born in America. But as Thomas taught last week, salvation is not passed down by blood. You do not inherit eternal life from your parents. You must make the decision to trust in Jesus Christ for your sins on your own, and you must follow Him. We can't inherit it, and John also says we can't earn it. We can't earn spiritual sight. He says we're not born of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to to do evil. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Jesus said, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. Sin comes from within us. It's not something that's just outside of us that we can work on and that we can kind of tidy up. We can't change ourselves from the outside. All you're doing by trying to do good works to impress God 
is whitewashing a tomb, to borrow an example from Jesus. Outside it looks great, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need God to perform divine heart surgery, to remove our heart of stone and to put in a heart of flesh. We must be born again by the gracious working of the Spirit. Now, how God does this is a mystery. John 3, verse 8, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. He takes one who used to hate God, and loves, and loves sin and changes her so that she loves God and hates sin. Someone like me who used to live for pleasure and selfish gain now has a desire to please God and to serve others. Why? Is it because I turned over a new leaf? No. God transformed me by His grace from the inside out. That's not me. That's not Jared. If Jared got his way, I'd still be living for myself. I'd still be using other people, taking advantage of people, wasting my life, living for things that are going to pass away. But 10 years ago, God, in His own mercy, came and He transformed my heart in a way that I've never been the same since. It's how Saul, who killed disciples, became Paul, who made disciples. What, what caused that? The grace of God. Has this happened in your life? Have you been transformed? Does your life look different? Has there ever been a point in time where you can say, that's happened to me? This is why we, by the way, we spent so much time nailing down the doctrine of the depravity of the heart of man. Because we cannot understand the need for the new birth without understanding our spiritual blindness, our spiritual helplessness. We've got to understand that. J.C. Ryle uh, once said, Wrong views of the disease will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure of that corruption. So if we believe, as many in American Christianity do, that people are basically good and just need some straightening out, the gospel will make no sense. Like the new birth is not necessary if that's the case. Like Nicodemus, you will scratch your head and completely miss Jesus' point. Like, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Like, I don't understand. And you'll spend your life in vain Trying to conform yourself to the law, which, by the way, is a very, very burdensome way to live your life. Because you're always going to have this nagging sense that I can't quite measure up, that I'm falling short. Because it's true. <laughs> you can't. We can't measure up to the law. We must be changed from the inside out. Only Jesus measured up to the law. That's why he came. He's perfect in righteousness. Not us. He's not asking you to try to be perfect in righteousness. He's asking you to humble yourself, admit that you're not, and then receive his free grace of forgiveness and eternal life. Like, why would you not want that? It, it, here's a testament to the spiritual blindness of man that we can hear that free offer and people can go, no, I don't want that. I'd rather do it on my own. What? Like, if there's anything that says that we've got a spiritual blindness problem, that's it right there. 
Jesus offers rest from this vain pursuit. He came and He lived the perfectly righteous life we couldn't live on our behalf. He died the death we deserved on our behalf. And three days later, He conquered death, which is the curse for sin. This is really good news for those who know their own depravity, who realize just how utterly helpless they are to save themselves. My question for you this morning is, do you realize that? Do you realize your utter helplessness before God? Are you ready to humble yourself and to receive this free, wonderful gift of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ? If you're beginning to realize that this morning, then what that means is that God is giving you spiritual sight. You're seeing with spiritual eyes, maybe for the first time ever. So what do you do now? Well, in this passage, there's an equal emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God must open the eyes of faith, but you must respond. John says, receive him and believe on his name. To believe in Jesus' name means to fully trust in his person and work. It's putting all of your salvation eggs in Jesus' basket. Jesus is not a safety net in case your good works fall short. Believing in Jesus' name means readily admitting that all of your good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. Only Jesus is righteous. That's what it means to believe on his name. Only Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, could pay the debt for your sin through His death on the cross. There is salvation in no other name. No other name, no other way. And receiving Jesus, what does that mean? That means accepting Jesus on His terms. It means welcoming His message and His call. Jesus' message and call is to repent of your sin and to follow Him. He said in Luke 9, 23, If any of you wants to come after me, a.k.a. be a Christian, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Receiving Jesus means accepting and obeying his words as Lord and confessing him before others. Your life is no longer oriented around you and your will, but around him and his will. That's what Christianity is. Receiving Jesus is a life committed to making disciples, of being a fisher of men. That's basic Christianity 101. Making the decision to receive and trust Jesus is what you must do to be born again and to become a child of God. Jesus sets two choices before us this morning. Reception or rejection. Everyone must make a decision regarding the identity of Jesus. Like, you realize that, right? Like nobody, nobody in this room can, can walk out going, I'll, I'll, t I'll pass on that one. And I just won't make a decision this morning. You'll either receive him or reject him this morning. You'll either worship him as Lord this morning or you won't. Only those who have faith are given the right to become children of God. That's what John 1 says. There's this notion in our society that we're all children of God. I understand what people can mean when they say that, that in one sense, yes, God created every single person and we're all made in the image of God. But when it comes to God's special chosen people who are in relationship with him, as God's covenant people, no, we are not all children of God. 
Galatians 3.26 says that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's how we become sons and daughters of God, through faith in Jesus. So what's your decision regarding Jesus? I'd encourage you not to pass over this question too quickly. Because it's the most important question you'll ever answer. Don't depend on your parents' faith or your church attendance or good works. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm asking, have you received Jesus on his terms? Have you been born again and changed from the inside out? Here's the truth. If you don't have saving faith, and I'm going to, and I'm kind of, I'm pressing this morning because here's the reality. Like my background, I, was, I grew up in church, okay? I grew up saying I was a Christian. I grew up surrounded by a bunch of other people who said that they were Christians. But guys, I was not following Jesus. I, I had not been changed from the inside out. I was not walking by faith in Jesus. Jesus was not my Lord. I didn't listen to him. I didn't obey him. It was mere lip service. I was one of those whom Jesus was talking about when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. My heart was far from him. And God graciously opened my eyes because people loved me enough to come into my life and tell me the truth. And by reading God's word, I began to realize, like I would read passages like Galatians 5, and I'd see the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And I realized, wow, I don't really have the fruit of the Spirit in my life. That's kind of concerning to me because I want to be saved. And God used that to save me. And so I'm pressing on you this morning because I know that there's people in this room just by percentage alone. I don't know anybody's hearts, but just the, the sheer amount of people in this room and the people watching online, there are people here who are cultural Christians and you've never been born of God. You've never been born again. And I want you to be born again. I want you to open your eyes. I want you to wake up. I want you to be saved. I want you to experience the same freedom in Christ that I have because God opened my eyes 10 years ago. So that's why I'm telling you that if you do not have saving faith, you are in a precarious position. You must cry out to God for mercy because right now the wrath of God remains on you. You are hardened in your sin. You're in spiritual darkness. And if you die in your sin, you will stay in darkness forever, separated from the presence of God in hell. If you are concerned right now about your spiritual state and standing before God, don't ignore that. God is graciously giving you a moment of clarity. Judgment is coming and you need to repent and flee to Christ. So many people have never had that moment of clarity. They suppress the truth. But God has graciously brought you here this morning to open your eyes so that you could be saved from the wrath to come. If today you want to trust in Jesus, confess it to Him in prayer and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how you're saved. That's what, that's what the book of Acts tells us. We've, we're excited today because we've got a baptism service today at 1 o'clock where we're going to be baptizing four believers Four people who've made that decision. Yeah, also let's give a hand of praise. <laughs> Baptism, what's so amazing is that it symbolizes what we're talking about. It symbolizes the new birth. When we baptize somebody, I always quote Romans 6, 3, and 4. I say, we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. 
what it means when you go into that water is it means that the old Jared or the old Ben or the old Matt is dead and gone and we've been raised to walk a new life. We're born again. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We are now a child of God. We are born of God. That's what baptism represents and symbolizes. And so we're, it, we're, it's the first step in a lifetime of following Jesus. So if you want to be saved, what must you do? Confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth. Make the decision to start following him and then come to talk to us and we'll make sure we get your baptism scheduled. And we'll baptize you so that you can begin doing that. If you're already a believer, the doctrine of total depravity and the necessity of being born again still has sweeping implications for your life. This isn't just a one-time doctrine and then we move on to higher things. We could never move beyond this. We could never stop being amazed at John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. I mean, for starters, when we think about how to apply this to our lives, we ought to fall on our knees in reverent worship of God because if it weren't for His grace, we would not be Christians. When we say that people apart from Christ are spiritually blind and dead in their sin, we do not say that as people who uh, are, are arrogantly looking down their noses going, well, I, I'm enlightened and all these people are just uh, fools who don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> when we say that people are spiritually blind and dead in their sin, we're saying is that we all, apart from the grace of God alone, are blind and dead in our sin. The only reason we see is God's grace. The only reason we see is God chose in his mercy to open up our eyes. There is no other explanation. And guess what? The only reason you wake up each morning still believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior is because God sustains you. He holds you fast. It's not because of your Bible knowledge. It's not because you keep your quiet time regularly. It's not because you come to church. It's not because you tithe. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the grace of God so that no man may boast and he may get all the praise and all the glory. Because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Man, every morning we, we wake up still believing is owing to the grace of God. I, I love Jeremiah thirty two forty. The, the new covenant applies to us. God says in the new covenant, he says, I will not turn away from doing good to my people. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Right there, like God promises. You're going to be held fast. You're not going to fall away because I'm going to keep you. John says that all who are born of God and believe in Jesus are given the right to become children of God. That's amazing as well. Stephen Charnock uh, was a Puritan pastor. He said, adoption gives us the privilege of sons, regeneration, the nature of sons. So not only are we given a new nature, but we're given the privilege of being children of God. As believers, we can enjoy and praise God for that privilege. I mean, just think about, think about some of the implications of that. Because all things belong to God, our Father, His resources are limitless. That means there is no need that you and I cannot go to God about in prayer. And He delights in answering prayer. Are you anxious or fearful? Do you have a great need not knowing where the provision is going to come from? Are you carrying a burden that you can't bear anymore? In Christ, you are a child of God. You can take that need to your Father, and He will meet your need. You can take it to Him in prayer. You have that privilege as a child of God. Being His child also comes with His protection and His favor. It comes with His smile and His love, which is steadfast and unconditional. 
Have you fallen into sin? Do you feel sure that God is frowning on you right now? That you're just a disappointment to Him? In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And we have an advocate before the Father. And as His child, your sin does not repel the Father. It draws out His compassion for you. He loves you. He cannot and will not forsake you. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ. There are so many reasons to praise God for the miracle of the new birth. The doctrine of depravity and the necessity of the new birth has other implications for believers. Because these things are true, we need, lastly, we need to depend on the power of the gospel alone to save the lost. No one can be saved by the will of the flesh or the will of man. So, parents, this means that you must pray for the souls of your children to be converted, to be born again. Don't depend on their church attendance or involvement in Christian programs, although those are not bad things. But teach them the gospel. Immerse them in the Word of God. Husbands, lead your family in family devotions. Lead your family in prayer and in the Word. Pray that your children come to recognize their own sin and need for a Savior. Because just as you were saved by grace alone, they too are only going to be saved by grace alone. Christians, everybody in this room, as you share the gospel with coworkers, family, or others, remember that the power to open the eyes of the spiritually blind does not lie in your hands, but in God's. It is not in your ability to articulate it well enough or in your extensive Bible knowledge to be able to answer whatever objection they present to you. It's in the simple, bold proclamation of the gospel and an invitation to respond. It's in telling a sinner, due to your sin, the wrath of God remains on you, but Christ Jesus has died on the cross in the place of all who believe. He's risen from the dead. So I call you to turn away from the vain things of this world and place your trust in Him and be saved. That's the simple message of the gospel right there. Those three little sentences. Anybody in this room can share that. And God will work through it and he moves through it because it's as we share the word of God, the gospel, that God saves people. If you share it in weakness and fear and much trembling, that's okay, you're in good company. Apostle Paul said that's what he was like when he went to Corinth. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. But he says, I, knew, I decided to know nothing among you except the gospel of Christ and him crucified. I mean, if the greatest church planter and evangelist of all time didn't get cute or fancy, but he was like, you know what, I'm just going to depend on the power of the gospel. Then I think we probably can do that too, don't you guys? <laughs> like, yeah, like in, any of us can do that. Now, this morning we've seen in John chapter 1 that there's only two responses to Jesus. Reception or rejection. And the reason Jesus is rejected by most is because all people are spiritually blind due to sin. And the only way one can receive Jesus is by being born of God. I'm asking the worship team to come up. And as they do, uh, we're going to have a time of prayer just in your seats to respond to the message. Um, during this time of prayer, here's what I want you to do. If you're not sure that you're born again, and you don't know where you stand with God this morning, and you're not sure if I've ever said, Jared, I don't know if I've ever had that point in time where I know, like, I have been changed from the inside out, 
then this morning I want to invite you just in your seat just to pray and to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior right there in your seat. There's no specific prayer. There's no specific prayer you have to pray. In your own words, you can confess to Jesus. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I fall short and I want you to save me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. So I want to encourage you to make the decision to do that. And then if you do make that decision that morning, come and share that with one of us, either myself or Pastor Thomas or Pastor Chad, or maybe if you came with somebody, you're visiting the church with somebody, tell the person who brought you or put it on a connect card in some way let us know so that we can help you begin to follow Jesus and we can start talking with you about being baptized. We would love to do that with you. And if you're already a Christian this morning, if you are a born-again believer, take this time to thank God for graciously giving you spiritual sight and maybe praying for spiritual sight for somebody right now that God's putting on your heart that you know. Somebody that's not a Christian, just, let's just take this time to pray for them and pray that God would open their eyes this morning, okay? So go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes, and let's take some few moments to pray. God, I thank you so much for your grace. Jesus, we praise you and worship you. God, you are so good. We are deserving of death, deserving of your wrath, deserving of the judgment of spiritual blindness, and yet you didn't leave us in our sin. You came from heaven to earth, the light of the world, came down into darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You have, for those of us who are believers, you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. God, thank you. Thank you that you don't just leave us to, to, to writhe in our sin and in the consequences that we've incurred for it, but you so mercifully have made a way and you paid such a high price to rescue us. The precious blood of Jesus poured out on the cross in exchange for us unworthy sinners. God, you demonstrated your love on the cross for us. We thank you. God, we pray for those in our lives that don't know you. God, we pray and plead with you that you would open their eyes. God, we plead with you for boldness on our part that if we have not done so recently or if we haven't done so yet, that we would share this gospel, this good news with them. And that as we do, that that gospel seed would find good soil, that you would do the miracle of the new birth in them, God. We want them to be saved. We want them to be with us in your presence forever. We don't want them to be lost. God, I pray that same thing for anybody in this room. Lord, may they not pass up this opportunity. Lord, we can't just decide, oh, I'll make this decision some, you know, maybe some other time. We don't have the ability to make this decision some other time. God, we're born again by power from on high. We can't just decide to believe whenever we want to believe. So, Lord, I pray that right now, if your spirit is moving on the heart of anyone, that they would not let this moment pass them by, that they wouldn't further harden their hearts towards you, God, and possibly harden them for good. God, I pray that right now, they would surrender to you, Jesus, and receive 
free gift of your grace. Open their eyes. God, we love you. We worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close our time in worship.